The best thing I did last year, or at least one of them, was uh, take a road trip to Regina. Um, those, those words I know don't usually go together, best and Regina. Um, or if you, if you usually say that, it's usually the best thing about Regina is leaving. But I didn't find that the case, actually. I really enjoyed Regina, enjoyed the road trip. My wife is not a big fan of road trips, but when we found out it was going to cost about $1,000 a person to fly to Regina, we thought, road trip. And uh, so we did. My son was playing in a baseball tournament there. We had a great time. It was a national tournament, and we really enjoyed our time there. What was interesting, of course, is, is, um, is the first part of the drive, the to Calgary section, is quite beautiful. Lots and lots of uh, trees and mountains and spots along the side of the road that you just want to stop and take pictures. Finally, you get to Calgary, which I found was actually pretty. It's got rolling hills and stuff. We stayed the night in Calgary, and then the next day, we had about seven hours or six hours to get to Regina, and let's just say it was not very interesting. Uh, that whole time, you'd driven this, this distance in this, pl- this way before. My wife never driven east like that before. This is actually the first east in Canada she's, at, she's ever been. And uh, there is a beauty to it. Uh, you can see the clouds forming over Ontario, and uh, they come <laughs> your way. We got there. Uh, people who, before we got to Regina, everybody we spoke to who was from that area, from Saskatchewan, most of the people we knew were from uh, Saskatoon. And they all told us to a person that Regina is a hole in the ground and how awful it is. So we weren't expecting when we got to Regina, we uh, actually really liked it. And just this is an outsider's point of view, having been to Saskatoon and Regina, let me just say to all of you, that they're the same, okay? It's the same town. And you can fight that if you want, but the rest of us are thinking, mm, I think it's about the same. They're flat, and they have some of them, there's trees in the area, and all that, and it's cold in the winter. Anyway, the hard part about a road trip, of course, is that you go there, you stay a week, and, and the hard part is the day before you leave, realizing that you have to drive back, because the drive there was fine, but it's the drive back that you're like, oh, do we have to do that again? My wife actually said to me, can I fly? Can we, my, me and Sophie fly? <laughs> and I, I, I was like, really? You're going to leave me alone? She said, well, it just depends on the price. You know, <laughs> like if it's cheap enough, you could do it. But no, we ended up coming back. And if you've been on road trips, I don't care where you live in the world, if you've been on road trips, uh, there's usually a spot that you feel you've, you've come home, right? So for some people, that's like when they drive in their driveway. They're like, oh, we made it. Other people are like, you just need to get to the outskirts of their town. Oh, we made it. For me, you, if you drive over uh, the Coquihalla Highway and you come down the other side and finally you go by Bridal Falls and then eventually you come out to the Falls Golf Course and you come down basically out of the mountains onto the flat and you can see Chilliwack there, that's when I'm like, oh, we're home. Um, I, I know people in Chilliwack. If I break down here, it's not hard. I've ridden my bike out here. It's going to be, it's good. I play golf at the falls. It feels like we finally arrived home after this long trip. Um, that's actually how you should feel today. We have spent the last several years, in fact, in the book of Romans. We started our series in the book of Romans in 2016, the fall of 2016. Some of you didn't have as many children in 2016 as you, have, as you have now. In the fall of 2016, 
Uh, we've taken breaks along the way, just like on a road trip, you take a break in, in uh, well, for us, Moose Jaw, because why not, right? Why is it called that? I don't, I don't know. Um, Moose Jaw and then Medicine Hat, which has a Costco for some reason. There's like seven people in it. So if you want to get through the lines in Costco, I'm telling you, Medicine Hat's your spot. Well, we've taken breaks along the way for different series, uh, different you know, adventures in other parts of the Bible, but every fall we've come back and finally, after 48 sermons, we have reached the end of the book of Romans. I'm, I'm actually really excited about this particular passage and about the fact that this puts a capstone on, on our trip through the book of Romans. I hope it's been a pleasure for you as much as it's been for me to, to teach it. Um, I do have three things we're going to learn from the end of this. This is how we want to do this. I just want to point out three things that we can learn from these last verses in the, in the book of Romans. Uh, they have to do with one, false teaching, second, head crushing, and third, obedient faithing. Now, I understand that the head crushing is probably really exciting to you if you're a 16-year-old boy, and that's going to be great, I promise, the head crushing. And the obedient faithing is not a word, but I don't care. So false teaching, head crushing, and obedient faithing. Here's the first of those, false teaching, which is really the bulk of the time we want to spend together, okay? So don't freak out if this is taking a little bit of time to work through. It's really the attention, I think that's what Paul's attention is on in this passage. So if you look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 16, you'll see what I mean by false teaching. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone who has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you, but I, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Here's the way that uh, a letter in the ancient world is supposed to be written. So the way you start letters then is with your name. I know in our culture you usually put your name at the end, but we have rules for letters that are kind of opposite. In the ancient world, if you want to write a letter to a group of people, especially if you're you know, an apostle and a leader of a church and you want to write to another church, here's how you do it. You start with your name, Jeff, and then you say your title, right? Uh, pastor of Northview Community Church and overall awesome guy. <laughs> Comma. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Father, Jesus Christ. You know, something like that. You, you, you do a greeting, just a formal greeting. And then after that, there's usually a formal prayer. I pray for you guys always because of these things I see in you and how I want to see God move in your lives. Usually the prayer has something to do with the rest of the stuff you're going to write. And my prayer for you has, it is kind of directed at the stuff I want to talk to you about. So... When you get into the body of the letter, you start addressing different things that are particular for that audience. And then at the end, you end by sending greetings to certain people there, right? Uh, hey, could you also say hello to Joe and Sally and Jim? Oh, Jim, he's my pal. We've known each other for years. And right after that, you'll say, and also, a bunch of my buddies who are with me, where I am, send their greetings to you. 
And then you finish it all off with some sort of doxology, some sort of statement like, oh, and now, now to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who can establish you and make you firm in the gospel and may you all live happily ever after, okay? So that, that's the way that you, that's the format. What's interesting about Paul is in the book of Romans, he follows that whole format until he gets to the end. He's supposed to say, hey, greetings to Joe and Sally and Bill and all these people, and then immediately follow it, and, and, and I've got a bunch of greetings from my buddies who are here with me. But he doesn't do that. He actually gives the greetings to the people, and then he stops, and it's almost like he said, oh, 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 oh I forgot this really important thing that you guys need to know. So can I just pause my letter for a second, and before I give you greetings from my buddies, I need to tell you this thing. What is the thing? I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Now, he says this because his experience has told him it's necessary. He usually goes to a church or to a region like Corinth or Ephesus or, you know, just a city. And he goes and he plants a church there, right? Wins people to, to faith in Christ and God moves in that area. And maybe there's a group of 20 or 30 or whatever. And they form a church there. And Paul leaves them behind. Maybe he's been there a year, a year and a half, whatever. He leaves them behind. He goes off to plant another church. And on every single occasion... Coming in after him have been people who have said, you know, what Paul taught was really great, but it's kind of incomplete. Or it was really great, except for these, you know, 20%. So we want to tweak that 20% to make it more special. Most of the books that you read in the New Testament are written to churches where somebody's come in behind Paul, messed everything up, and Paul sits down and he writes it out, and he says, come on, here. This is where you went wrong. This is why you're in danger of the teaching that they've brought in. So in Romans, he's not visited, to these, visited these people, but he sent them this letter introducing himself, and he's given them his gospel, the teaching that he's received, and said, okay, now that I've given it, you need to watch out. Before we're done, you need to watch out because there will be people who come in and they're going to try to change the whole thing because it happens everywhere I go. Watch out for them. That, that word, that phrase, watch out, is really helpful, actually. Uh, in, in the original language that it's written in, in, in Greek, it's a, it's a word that is used frequently to talk about uh, ships and how you need to watch out for sandbars or watch out for uh, debris in the water. You know what a crow's nest is? It's the big basket that's on the, on the mast. It used to be anyway. And used to, people before sonar and radar, you could sit up there and you'd, you'd, you'd get your binoculars out and you'd scan the horizon. And when you saw an enemy ship, you'd say, pirates on the horizon or whatever. Land ho! I always wanted to be the guy who yelled land ho. There's actually a really interesting story that I came across this week. It had nothing to do with my sermon. I was just reading dumb history, which is what I do. Um, there's, there's, a, there's an unknown little tidbit of history around the sinking of the Titanic that you probably don't know. A guy named David Blair was supposed to be the guy who was in the crow's nest of the Titanic. 
David, David Blair had trained on the Titanic. He had taken some of the test voyages that they'd done just around England there and come back. He was all trained. But the night before the Titanic left from Liverpool, England, he got pulled off of his post because he needed to be redeployed to another ship somewhere. He was replaced by another guy. Now, here's, here's the little tidbit of history. When David Blair left, he took inadvertently the key to the locker for the crow's nest with him. Like you take a pen from your office when you leave the office, and you're like, oh, I forgot the pen. I was employed there, and I brought the pen, and now it's got it on there. Oh, I should probably return this, but I'm not going to be able to. And he brought the key. The problem is, in the locker were the binoculars for the crow's nest. So when the, the voyage began, the new guy came down and he went to the locker, assuming it was going to be open, was not open. Didn't have the key. Asked around, where's the key? Oh, it must be in David Blair's pants pocket somewhere. We're going to have to do without it. We'll have to do without the binoculars. Oh, what could go wrong? He climbed up into the crow's nest, he and his partner, and they, you know, maybe put their hands, they probably didn't do this, right? Didn't work. But it got, all, it got all foggy one night, and they were unable to see the iceberg in enough time for the ship to move. They believe, in fact, if they had binoculars, they would have seen the iceberg. The ship would have turned, and you and I wouldn't be talking about the Titanic today. Moral to the story is always return the stuff back to your former employer, right? <laughs> but it's a great image. Isn't it? That's essentially what Paul's trying to say. He's, he's, there's icebergs in these waters, there's theological danger in the waters we sail. And if you get too close to those icebergs, you won't be able to turn in enough time and your ship will sink. Your faith will be shipwrecked. So the question you need to ask is, okay, how do I know it's an iceberg? How do I know it's a false teacher? And, and secondly, if I... If I realize it is a false teacher, what do I do? Paul actually answers both of those questions in this little passage, all right? So, so the first question, how do I know it's a false teacher? What, what, what do they look like? Listen to, listen to what he says. There's three characteristics that he points out. One, he says, they cause divisions and put obstacles in the way of the teaching you've learned. They cause divisions. And they put barriers up to the teaching that you've learned. The stuff that I've taught you, they end up making it hard for you to believe that because they're dividing the church and teaching something different than what I, than what I taught you. Here's the way it works. Just I've been around the church long enough and I've done enough study in church history to come to some conclusions about how the way this sort of thing works in the church. A church gets planted. It's established in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul taught. The planter goes, they faithfully proclaim the word of God. The church grows for a period of time. Things are, things are going well. Maybe the pastor ends up leaving, the planter ends up leaving for, to plant another church. Maybe they, they, they just leave because they get sick, whatever. New leaders come in. And those new, new leaders come in and they are in now a culture and a setting that was, is different than what they came, the, the planter came to the first time. And so those new leaders look out and they say, well, we need to reach out to the community. But the problem is that this doctrine that we have, not the method, we can switch the method all we want, but the doctrine that we have 
isn't really appealing to the people out there. Because who in the culture today is going to respond to a God who sends people to hell? Who's going to respond to a God who's got certain views on sexual ethics? Who's going to respond to a God who doesn't include everyone in heaven, that everyone ultimately doesn't make it? What we should do is we should change our God so that it meets more of their approval and therefore more of them will come. See the math? So they do. They start preaching different things and they say, yeah, look, 80% of the stuff that the church planner brought along was awesome, but this other 20% doesn't really fit the cultural tide these days. You know, who's going to believe in resurrection and talking snakes? So that stuff's probably just a metaphor and doesn't really make sense to modern people. So we need to change it all so that they, it's appealing and palatable to them. It's all for the mission. There's a group of people in the church, of course, who find that out and say, well, wait a minute. Isn't it, aren't we, aren't we called to hold on to the faith that was once entrusted to all the saints? Aren't we, aren't we called to remain faithful to what scripture teaches, even in the light of changing culture and stuff? We should reach out to those people with maybe new methods and new ways of talking, but not changing the content of what we're saying, right? No, 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 say the, the changers. You, you need to change the content because they're not going to buy it. Mission, you need to do it for the mission. But wait a minute, say the ones who want to stay. That's not right. And then the ones who, ones who want to make the change, they say, why are you being so divisive? Why are you dividing the church? The question you should be asking, though, is uh, who's dividing the church? Who's causing the division? The changers? That's what Paul says, isn't it? They, the ones who are kind of coming after me, says Paul, they cause divisions. They put obstacles in the way of the teaching you've learned. You don't get extra points for updating the doctrine of the church. You don't. I can prove it to you. Uh, Jude 3, I already made reference to this passage. Jude says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share... I wanted to talk about all this cool stuff that I've preached to you before. I felt compelled to write and urge you instead to contend for what? The faith that was once for all delivered. Once for all entrusted to God's holy people. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, what you have heard from me, Timothy, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit. That was entrusted to you. Don't go in there and fiddle with it, man. Just guard it. Stand outside. Make sure it doesn't get altered. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Timothy, watch your life, the way that you live and act, and your doctrine, what you believe, what you teach. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Even though there's going to face a lot of persecution and people pushing back against them, in season and out, preach the word, Timothy. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You'll do what? You'll save them. The doctrine as it stands, the gospel as it stands, has the power to save. But when you start fiddling with it, you remove the power to save. You can save your, yourself and your hearers if you persevere in it. You don't get points for updating the doctrine of the church. Methods, sure. 
Shine the lights brighter. Use a bigger microphone. Use haze. Praise God. Let's do anything. But the message, you don't get points for that. So uh, they cause divisions, put obstacles. You know, how do you know they're false teachers? That's the, they cause divisions and put obstacles up in the way of the teaching you've learned. Second, they're not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Did you see that in that phrase? Verse 18, that they're not serving the Lord Christ, but, but they're serving their own appetites. You know, there's this interesting little section in, in uh, the book of Matthew. It's a really fun, fun story. Uh, it is only one of the places in the Bible where one of the disciples gets called a really bad name by Jesus. Jesus is usually really kind and generous leader. In this case, he is not. Some of you will know the passage I'm speaking of. Um, basically what happens is that Jesus has not been really explicit about what's going to happen to him when he goes and gets captured by the Romans. But he finally gathers his, his team, his disciples, in a huddle and says, all right, guys, I'm going to go, and the Romans are going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Break. Now, these guys had come along and joined this mission because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which is a military term meaning that he was going to throw out the Romans on their ear. He was going to bring the sword, and he was going to deliver the people, just like Moses did. He was going to deliver the people from the oppression, right? The snakes and the leprosy arms and the you know, death of the firstborn. All, that's what Jesus is going to do. So Peter, knowing this, said to Jesus after the break, Jesus, can I just talk to you for just a second? Jesus, come here. Come over here. I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but in the Messiah manual, it says that we win. So what we need from you is positivity at this point. I don't want to hear about how you're going to die. That's not actually going to help us. What we need is for you to, to win. I got a sword ready. I'm going to cut someone's ear off, man. Right, but I, we... We need your help to drive us forward, okay? Okay? Good talk, Jesus. <laughs> you know what happens, those of you who know the story, Jesus kind of backs up, looks at Peter and said, hey, Peter, why don't you get behind me, Satan? Why don't you get behind me, devil? Because you don't, you don't, you're not all about the things of God, you're about the things of men, Hey, hey, guys, he says. And he just broke the huddle. Hey, guys, can I tell you something important? Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, wants to be my learner, must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will will find it. He must deny themselves. One of, the, one of the core aspects, characteristics of a follower of Jesus is that they are given over to self-denial. Not self-aggrandizement, not self-fulfillment, not selfishness, self-denial. But what false teachers do is they come in and they say, now, come on, those appetites that you have, you should pursue them. Do what you feel, man. You feel like having sex with 
whoever you want to have sex with. You feel like you have inside of you this desire. You just do that, man. Just do that. I know that people have said in the past that the Bible says something different than that, but you know what? We live in a modern day. It's 2020. There are ways to understand that now. They were writing for that day, and this day is different. Embrace the appetite. You guys want money? Do you want money? I want money. I want all the things that the money can buy. Did you know that if you speak out and proclaim things into the air, the law of attraction means that you will get back what you speak. Jesus does this for you. He's instituted this law. He's come along and he wants to help you have more money so you can have more stuff. I know there's lots of stuff in the Bible that talks about giving and talks about uh, generosity, but you need a bigger house. Jesus can give you that. Don't deny yourself. Embrace yourself. They're not serving our Lord Christ. They're serving their own appetites. Thirdly, though, he also says they use smooth talk and flattery. Smooth talk and flattery. That that word flattery is the word blessing. Everywhere else in the Bible it's used as positive, but here it's not positive. It sounds like a blessing. In other words, when they talk, you're like, wait a minute, that sounds awesome. Money? All right. So uh, Aristotle was probably the guy who came up with the best explanation on how to persuade someone. Okay? So even if you go into uh, classes on speech or persuasion these days, marketing classes, they will use some form of Aristotle's teaching. Here's what Aristotle taught, that if you want to convince somebody, you want to sell them, you know, on your snake oil, or if you want to sell them on that car that they don't want to buy, here's what you got to do. These are life lessons, folks. Here we go. Number one, you need to have ethos. You need to, second, have pathos. And third, you need to have logos. Ethos is how a person feels about you, the speaker, the convincer, the salesperson, while you're making the sales pitch. Do they trust you? Do they believe you have authority? How do they feel about you as a person while you're making this sales pitch? Pathos is how they feel about the sales pitch itself. Is it phrased in the right way? Did you use alliteration or different kinds of methods of of rhetoric to try to convince them of of what you want them to do. It's how they feel about the speech act itself. Third, logos is the logic of it. Does it make sense? Is it plausible? In their minds, when they try to connect the dots, they say, oh, maybe. If you do all three of those, ethos, pathos, and logos, in other words, they, they like you, they like the way you said it, and ultimately they can see it's kind of plausible, they will buy the car. They will buy the car. Now, here's what this has to do with false teaching. We live in a day today where one of the three of those is less important than the other two. The one that's less important to us is logos. We don't usually sit down and think to ourselves, does that make logical sense? We don't usually evaluate stuff that way. Instead, what we say is, does that person impress me by the way they're talking? And does that person impress me about the way they are? And if they do, I'm in, man. Look at how they dress. Amazing. Look at how amazing they are when they say this. They rhyme everything. They wear all the right jeans 
or they don't wear jeans, they wear a tie or whatever it is that they do, I'm in because look at how they do it. It's so polished and excellent. Think about it. If you look on YouTube today and you see something that's kind of hack made, you're like, I'm not buying that. But if it's made slick and it has the right transitions and the music behind it, boom, 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 and the guy's got awesome shoes, you're like, you're like I'm in, I'm in. If it sounds good and you're likable, people will buy it. And listen to me, false teachers that I know in the modern day, I don't know any that are mean and boring. Not one. They're always awesome and really engaging. You and I think that somehow they're going to show up with their pitchfork and their little red hat. <laughs> I'm here to draw you away. No, they show up with the skinny jeans. Man, they're awesome. <laughs> Which is one of the signs I'm not a false teacher. Anyway... I'm kidding. <laughs> so I was, I was in going to Seattle a few years ago with some friends, and uh, there's a guy who was speaking there, well-known pastor all around the United States, written lots of books. I'd read a lot of the stuff he said, and it was really on the edge of historic Christian belief. I mean, it was really, some, some of it was over the edge. You were like, oh, dude, I think that you might actually be denying the faith here. The guys I was going with were so excited, right? These guys are rock star. He showed up. He had a whiteboard up there. It was a triangle whiteboard. Cool, man. They're usually square. This one's triangle. He had built an altar on the stage, and he was walking around the altar and throwing things into this old ancient altar. It was amazing. Hour and a half he spoke. Hour and a half. And you're, the whole time, story after story, you're sitting on the edge of your seat. It's a remarkable ability. Dressed all the part, the cool shirt and the glasses. and Amazing. Amazing. When we've done done with the, the, the time we got back in the car, I was troubled because a good chunk of what he said was actually heresy. Like it was actually historic heresy. But the young adults I came with got in the car and said, whoa, that was so amazing. He's so amazing. Did you hear about how, what he said? It's so great. It's just so liberating and free and stuff. And somewhere around Everett, I just said, guys, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I get it. He looks cooler than everybody else I know, but come on. Did you... Did you hear this one, and did you hear this one, and did you hear this one, and this one, and this one? Like, if you compare that to what Scripture says and the historic church says, then he's way outside of that, right? Oh, you're right. The next hour and a half, we talked about this. As I dropped them off, I, I, I thought to myself, this is the problem. This is the problem. Smooth talk. Flattery. And we buy it. So what do you do if you, iceberg, what do you do? <laughs> you say, there, there it is, false teacher ho. <laughs> what do you do? It's interesting what Paul says. Did you see the line that he says? If you see these folks at the end of verse 17, keep away from them. Second John 9 says similarly, uh, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Stay away from them. You don't need to go and visit the iceberg to see if it's going to sink you. You don't. I can hear the objections. I hear them myself in my own head. Oh, come on, Jeff. Give me a break. Like 90% of what they say is awesome. Makes, it helps. It makes me feel better. It, it, it's encouraging. It's therapeutic. 
maybe only 10% of what they're saying is, you know, borderline heresy or bizarre, whatever. I, I have the ability to just turn that away. They're still a good teacher. They're still good. You just have a little bit of that. So, okay, if that's the view that we tend to have, well, let me just imagine that I'm a good husband. I know that's hard for you, but imagine that I'm a good husband and I love my wife and faithful to her and kind, love my kids, good pastor, faithful to the church, want to honor God in my pastoring. And that 90% of the time I do that. 90% of the time I'm faithful to my wife. I also, 10% of my year I go to Vegas and I, you know, drunk in haze, do a lot of lines of coke and, and I... I don't remember a lot of it. I know there are a lot of women involved, right? I've got some diseases because of it. But you know what? It's not a, it's 10% of the time. 90, that's like an A. That's an A. I'm an A husband, right? She should be thankful that I'm an A husband. She should be thankful that 90% of the time she can count on me to be faithful to her, right? Right, Jeannie? Jeannie? Right? Of course not. Of course not. You're like, wait a minute, 10% disqualifies you. Yes, Right. Right. There's no need to get up close to the icebergs. Trust me, when you see one, you can steer clear. Do you know I have six and a half minutes to finish this sermon? Here we go. <laughs> I told you the first one would be the longest. Here's the second one, okay? But head crushing. Head crushing. This is actually, I just needed to point this out to you because it's really cool. Uh, verse 20, he ends this little section by saying, the God of peace, the God of peace, ah, peace, will soon crush Satan. Isn't that great? The peaceful God will crush him. He will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. What's going on here? What does that mean? The God of peace will crush Satan. All right, so if you go back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, you've got Adam and Eve who sin against God. God comes to the garden. He's like, hey, where are you guys at? They're, they're like, hey, uh, God, we're over here. We're, why are you trying to hide? He, he lines up the serpent, Adam, and Eve, and he starts to judge them. He goes down the line, and he, and he passes judgment on each one of them. This is what he says to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, he says, okay, because you've done this, because you've deceived her, I'm going to put enmity, strife, between you and the woman. Like, you guys aren't going to like each other, you, you snakes and the ladies. And between your offspring and hers. Amen, ladies? No, you guys are cool, snake in your house. You're like, oh, beautiful. <laughs> no, you're like, and you start, what do you do? You want to crush its head, yes? That's what I want to do. Run away or take my heel and I crush its head while it tries to bite my heel. Now, okay, so he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So on the face of it, this passage seems to be like, yeah, this is why we hate snakes. Or is it? He, it says, will crush your head. Who's he? He's going to crush the serpent's head. You're, he's an offspring. He's one of the offspring of Eve. But he's going to crush the serpent's head. And you, serpent, will try to strike his heel. Well, this is actually what theologians have for centuries actually called the proto-euangelion. It is the first proto-preaching of the gospel, euangelion. It's the first gospel. So here, even in the midst of judgment in the very early stage, what God is saying, even through his judgment on the serpent, that, hey, by the way, serpent, your days are numbered. It might look right now like you've cast all of humanity into sin, but I'm going to bring one about. Someone, 
a he, and he is going to come about and he is going to crush your head. Who's that, you think? Sunday school answer? It's Jesus, and as Paul is picking this up, and he's saying, oh, guys, by the way, I know that you're in the midst of all this trial and tribulation and difficulty in Rome. I know that there are these false teachers maybe coming around, and they're going to create enmity and strife all around us. But don't worry, because God is going to crush the serpent's head. You, in Christ, are going to crush his head. You will be with Christ, and he will bring his peace through the crushing of the serpent's head. Head, we're part of a grand plan, in other words, that God has written before the foundations of time and that you and I are stuck in the middle of it, but it's been written. The end has been written. You can be assured of it. There's this scene in um, Lord of the Rings. Every Christian pastor who's faithful is required to quote a Lord of the Rings thing every like eight months. So this is mine, okay? So tick the box. There's a Lord of the Rings, the um, the first one. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring, and there's a scene. It's called Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is the fortress that they're, you know, they're, they're standing their ground in while the orcs come. Remember the orcs? <laughs> they, they come at them. The orcs are actually able to breach the fortress at one point, and the whole film just drops. You're like, oh my goodness, this is all going to go wrong. There is no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope. But then just at that moment, Gandalf, who is the gray wizard who's been gone for most of the movie at this point, shows up over the hill, and he's Gandalf the White, and he shines his bright light, and he leads his charge down, and he just destroys these orcs. Every time you watch it, I'm like, you know why I do that? It's because J.R.R. Tolkien, who who wrote it, was trying to give you an image of what it will be like when our God, our Jesus, emerges over that hill, when we, the oppressed by the enemy, have had enough And that he emerges and he comes down and he finishes it. And he brings his peace. This God of peace will crush the orcs slash serpent slash Satan under his feet. So you you might be in a situation today that's causing you all sorts of heartache and trial and difficulty. I know that I am. But this is not the end of this story. You, You are a character in a larger play. And soon enough he will emerge over that ridge. And peace will ensue. The book of Romans is actually trying to encourage you all along to have hope. The word shows up over and over again, and the hope you're supposed to have is in this day, is in this king, is in this white wizard, in in this Jesus. All right, last one then, okay? Isn't that cool, though? Head crushing. Last one. Obedient faithing. I know it's not a word. So he finally gets around to the point where he's like, okay, so I've told you my important, like, tidbit about the false teaching I I want to make sure now that I send you some greetings uh, from some of my buddies. Timothy, my co-worker, verse 21, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul had a secretary who was writing it. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's public director, or sorry, director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. So ready? Here comes, the, here comes the capstone, the doxology, finally. Wrap it up. Put a bow on it, Paul. Now to him who is able to establish you, like he's going to plant you in the gospel, establish you in accordance with my gospel. 
This gospel is the message that I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. We didn't know about it all along. The Old Testament pointed to it. I've shown you through my book how that happened and how we've now come to this full realization that this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. But now it's been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. And what's the goal of all of this? What's the goal of the book of Romans in your life? So that all the Gentiles, you a Gentile? Yep. So that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Not that they might come to faith, but that they might come to the obedience that comes from faith. I I don't want you just to stop with faith, says Paul. I, I want you to believe everything I've written, but I want that belief to make a difference in the way that you live and how you respond to Jesus. Romans 1.5, actually, if you go back to the beginning of the book, he brackets the whole book with that phrase. This is the end that we just read. Romans 1.5, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. The goal of this book is to make you somebody who believes in the Lord Jesus and that belief isn't just static. It doesn't make you just fat. It turns you into somebody who worships him with everything you've got. You become obedient because of the faith you have. And this, guys, this is Romans 12, 1. Paul says, uh, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So halfway through the book, he says, listen, verses, chapters 1 through 11 have been describing the mercy of God. In view of that mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You ever, you ever carb-loaded? I, I do it frequently. Enjoy a good carb-load. If you, if you are an athlete, you know exactly what carb loading is. Carb loading is what happens when you have a race the next day or you have to do some massive exercise the next day and you go out and you, like, you eat Olive Garden, all of it. You just are like, I'm gonna have the ravioli followed by the spaghetti and anything else that just, I just have straight carbs. Can you just inject them in me? And the reason you do this is so that the next day when you're running your marathon, right, at mile 13 or whatever it is, you're getting really tired and that secret carb Popeye mix that you put inside of you just injects in you and you're like, whoa, I can keep running carb load so that you can keep doing it. Now, what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that you and I love Gatorade, which is high in carbs and stuff, and we love pasta. So we're like, I'm gonna carb load as well, right, for tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and then you watch. You don't run it, but you watch the run. And this is the motion you do with the clicker there. You're like, hmm, my thumb is tired. I'm hoping for that Popeye mix to come in soon, right? And what what ends up happening to us? Well, I'm an American. What happens to us Americans? Well, we we get round because of our carb loading. Because the purpose of the carb load is to find something that it turns into, that it's the purpose of the carb load is to change the way you live, to give you energy to live differently, yes? To act differently. I fear very much that so many Christians are just fat on the couch full of carbs, full of faith carbs, but the faith they claim to have isn't actually working. It's not actually working itself out. And listen, if that's the case, 
If that's the consistent case in our lives, we're just sitting there fat on the couch. James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it sells. You're deceiving yourself to believe it's real. So here's the question, just as we finish, that Paul wants to ask you at the end of Romans. He's given you his gospel. He's tried to explain all its implications. And he's asking you, is your faith just words? I know you're good at it. You, you spend time in church and you know how to use words like glory and blessings. Is it just words? You're carved up, man. I go to church, I, go, I, I read my Bible, I spend some time listening to this stuff and it fills me full. But is it empowering you to live then? Is it showing itself up in the way that you act? Is the gospel working itself out in you, in your money, in your relationships, in your work, in the way you spend your time, in what your dreams and hopes are for your family and your future? Is that where it's playing itself out? Or are you just on the couch? Romans is intended to bring about the obedience of faith. Is it? Is it? Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this book. I'm so, so thankful for uh, your grace in giving it to us and ultimately, Lord, all that it's explained. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Father, that we would see the outcome of it the way that Paul described it, that it wouldn't just be stuff that uh, goes into our heads and we nod at it because, because that's, that's interesting and valuable stuff. But instead, Lord, it would change the way we live this gospel. So remind us of it repeatedly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.